Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, thank you so much and welcome to the Joma Podcast. Dr. Kelly Pieper is the Pulmonary Director of the Pediatric Sleep Disorders Program at Cohen Children's Medical Center. After graduating the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, she continued her training at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore Children's Hospital of New York and the Sleep Disorder Institute of New York Medical College. She is board certified in pediatrics, sleep medicine, and pediatric pulmonology. She's an assistant professor at Hofstra University Medical School. Her clinical practice includes the full spectrum of pediatric sleep disorders, from sleep disordered breathing to insomnia to restless leg syndrome. She also interprets polysomnograms on children who undergo sleep studies from newborns up to young adults and is actively involved in quality improvement projects for the Pediatric Sleep Laboratory. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk about this topic because as a general pediatrician, I feel like I get so many questions about sleep. um, And as a parent, I have so many questions about sleep. So I'm excited to to get some answers. Um, So first, let's start with just in general, how common are pediatric sleep disorders? How How can parents know or what can they do to identify that their kid might have a sleep disorder early on? Sure. It's a great question. I mean, we spend so much of our life asleep. So any disruption to sleep in a child not only affects the child, but the entire household. And all of us who are parents uh, know that for sure. Um, Anything that uh, can possibly interfere with sort of the daytime functioning of a child that could be related to sleep is technically classified as a sleep disorder. So that could be a million different types of, of sleep problems. Um, we often think of sort of the common ones being the medical ones, things like sleep apnea, but really anything that's causing someone to not getting en- uh, get enough sleep or not getting enough quality of sleep um, could, could be a sleep disorder in a child. Okay. Okay. So that's a pretty broad definition. So what, what are some common sleep disorders um, in children? Because I, I feel like sometimes parents think that something something is, is abnormal or pathology, when in reality, it may just be normal sleep variants. Sure. And there are, um, a, there's a lot of variation in what we should be expecting from our children to sleep. So sort of a general rule of thumb is that your sleep should make you feel well-rested. And when we think of adults, you know, we should be getting enough sleep and enough quality sleep that we feel pretty good getting ourselves throughout the day and not being too tired or overtired. And kids can be sort of the same thing. You know, we should be... Um, ex- we should be looking at how they're behaving during the day to, as a marker of how well they're sleeping at night. So if you have a child who is yawning all the time, rubbing their eyes, excessively irritable or cranky, that should sort of make you think that, you know, this, this child is maybe not getting what they need um, at, at night or throughout the day. And some of the things that can cause that are, you know, again, not having enough uh, sleep or the quality of their sleep being impacted. Um, but just count going by hours or, or going by, you know, where your child's sleeping or how they look like they're sleeping isn't always the best marker that there is a problem. 
So in, in terms of the amount of sleep, because I think that that tends to come up a lot, how much sleep should children get? I, and I know this varies by age, but what are kind of some guidelines that, that we can use to determine um, that, that our children are getting adequate sleep, just time? Sure. So absolutely. It definitely varies by age. And when you're looking at an infant, um, the amount of sleep that they could be getting throughout the course of a 24-hour period can range anywhere from you know, 12 to 16 hours and even more on the extremes. You know, there are some some infants who sleep a little bit less and some who, you know, will sleep uh, small amounts all day long and that might add up to 18 or 19 hours. But for the most part, somewhere around that 12 to 16 hours when you add together all the amount um, of sleep that they're getting. Um, of course, it never feels like that for a, new, a newborn, uh, with a newborn in the house for a new family. Um, but usually that's about the amount of sleep they're getting. Once you hit the toddler years, um, it still is a good amount of sleep, 11 to 13 hours when you're still counting in the naps. You know, most kids will still nap until they're at least three, four years old. So when you sort of add that to the, the cumulative um, hours per day, they're getting upwards of 11 or so hours of sleep. Can you get the two-year-old who sleeps a little bit more or a little bit less? Absolutely. But that's a general rule of thumb. Um, our school-age kids and our teens still need a good amount of sleep, uh, you know, as adults, we're always thinking of this magic number as being eight hours. And if you get eight hours, you have a good amount of sleep. And the reason why we say that is because when you look at the amount of sleep someone needs, it's a bell-shaped curve. So eight hours is sort of the, the top where the most people will say that they function pretty well on eight hours of sleep. Um, but that is not enough even for an older child. You know, most school age, you know, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids are still going to need somewhere between nine and 12 hours. Um, with our teens still needing more than eight hours, you know, closer to nine, um, some as much as nine and a half or more. Very rare for them to be getting it. But that's sort of a, a general rule of what, what these older kids are still needing. So how do you deal with teenagers or even older school-age kids um, who say that they, they can't, right, or quote-unquote can't fall asleep before 11 o'clock, right, midnight, sometimes later, and so obviously they're not getting the necessary amount of sleep and, and probably their sleep quality is compromised as well. How do you approach that? Yeah, so that's a great one. And that is a very common problem that um, that we see. And there is some truth to it. Sometimes they cannot actually fall asleep um, at that time. You know, we all have a clock that lives up in our brain. Um, and it sets what we call our circadian rhythm, tells us when we should be asleep, when we should get be awake, when we should feel tired. Um, and that shifts around the time of puberty or adolescence by about an hour or two. Um, whereas instead of, you know, having that really strong sleep drive where, you know, a toddler might fall asleep in the middle of a birthday party, all of a sudden these older, uh, you know, older children, young teens can really sort of force their way through that and um, their body's telling them, hey, it's okay to stay up a little bit later. Um, so that there's definitely some biological reasons why they all of a sudden might feel like they can't fall asleep when they used to. Now we do stuff to really augment that. Um, and the biggest, the biggest culprit there is, um, our exposure to light at night. So when it comes to sort of light exposure, which is a big driving force for our circadian rhythm, um, our brain is very simple. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter their grades or what kind of classes they're in. When the brain sees light of any source, it says this must be the sun and you need to stay awake. It's daytime. You need to stay awake. So you add to um, these teenagers this drive for their body saying, hey, it's okay to stay up a little bit later. And then they get on their video games or on their phone or their Snapchat. And those 
bright lights are sending a signal to the brain that says, hey, stay awake, stay awake even later. And that can really push them into an off, um, an off schedule. So it sounds like screen time very much is the culprit, which I, I'm sure teenagers are, are not so excited to hear. But is that generally the recommendation that right we're reducing any kind of screen time prior to how, how long before bed typically? Absolutely. So, I mean, as a general rule of thumb, I tell people, I call them the close screens in quotes, uh, you know, the things that you really have to physically hold close to you. So something like um, a phone, a tablet, a laptop, um, video game, something where you're really, you know, visually very close to the, the source of the light, um, plus very mentally stimulating. I usually tell people about an hour if, uh, you know, if they're not having any sleep problems, if, if they're going off to sleep and they want it to be 45 minutes, fine. But usually by the time they've come in to see me, there is a problem. So an hour and that might not be enough. It might need to be two hours. If having a routine and watching a little TV across the you know family room as a family, watching something that you all enjoy at night is part of that. Um, I'm a little bit less worried about that. It's really sort of this very dramatic bright light exposure um, close up. And I really think it's a terrible habit to get into to have screens in the bedroom, you know, regular TV or whatever it may be. Um, it's a very hard habit to break. And um, it's just better not to start that as a habit to begin with. So I think that's that's some great insight on behavioral intervention for teenagers and older kids. But what about infants? Uh, my experience has been that parents don't always have realistic expectations for infant sleep time and sleep length. What should babies really be doing, especially newborn babies? So newborn babies are pretty much the boss. You know, we have to follow <laughs> their cues for when they want to sleep and be awake and eat. Um, I think it's a, a little unrealistic to expect that every baby is going to be able to follow, uh, you know, the ideal of, you know, three naps uh, during the day and a, a 10, 12 hour sleep overnight from the get go. Sure. Um, we can't really force that. You know, some of it is um, developmental, some of it is age related, um, and some of it is personality of the infant. But for the most part, um, setting good routines and sort of getting expectations in check will make it for a much simpler transition um, to, to sleep. So even with the young kids, you'd be surprised keeping the, um, the screens away, away from, you know, the children's room or the, uh, or the crib is, is a good thing. We, of course, always advocate for sleep, safe sleep practices for kids, putting them infants on their back to sleep, making sure that they don't have any um, big uh, plush pillows, uh, big stuffed animals or blankets that they could uh, potentially have um, issues with breathing related to. But you want to have some sort of general pattern of your night, nothing that's so specific that, you know, you're, you're, you're tied to it. But, you know, it's feeding, changing the diaper, singing your song, a little cuddling, putting the baby down. Um, and that's that transition piece to putting the baby down that I think a lot of people, you know, like to uh, come up with different solutions to on how they're going to do it. But in the mo for the most part, what the goal is, is to get a baby to go down while they feel sleepy, um, but aren't totally asleep. If you imagine that you, you know, fell asleep in one room uh, and you woke up in another room, you'd be pretty surprised you know, in the middle of the night. And and infants go through that as well. You know, they one when they wake up, they know how they fell asleep and they kind of need to recreate that to feel comfortable falling off to sleep again. So um, it's a sort of a good practice to get that baby used to 
falling asleep in whatever sleep environment you foresee being uh, what you plan for in the long term. So the the term we like to use is is like that that drowsy drowsy but awake right that's kind of what what we aim to um, what we aim to have the baby at right before we put them down any tips or 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 kind of tricks that you have to prevent that baby from startling themselves back awake once we do put them put them to sleep sure so certainly a lot of infants like to be swaddled and that can really help uh, with that um, I think uh, making sure that your baby is sort of, you know, well-fed, dry, everything else seems pretty comfortable when you're doing that sort of transition is going to help. And then some of it is just trial and error of, of, of getting that, that, you know, that baby to take that next step. And you've heard, uh, you know, and there are all different methods out there, right? There are ways that you do a cry it out or verbalizing the baby or a no cry sleep solution, all these, all these different ways to do it. Um, and, and they all work. I mean, they're all, it's all, if you're consistent with something, they're all you know, work. Some work quicker than others. Some are, uh, you know, more easily, easier for the families to tolerate. But in general, it's all a matter of setting a routine, getting that baby to sort of go down for those last couple of seconds before, the, before they fall off to sleep. I think what one thing that could be very hard is if you have a baby who's a naturally good sleeper and you're able to rock or, or nurse or bottle feed the baby to sleep, and then they transition really easily to the crib when they're asleep, that's well and good until maybe they're 11, 12 months old. And now all of a sudden that's not so easy and you've missed sort of this golden opportunity of, of teaching the baby um, those sort of routines and habits that they need to what we call self-soothe. Um, all of us wake up during the night, including infants. We all have natural awakenings during the night. We don't normally realize it um, as adults, but because you, you need to be awake for a couple of minutes to sort of really recall it. But we all do little things to help us fall back asleep. We flip to the cold side of the pillow, we pull the blanket over our ears, we get into our favorite position, um, and we go back to sleep. The infant who is used to falling asleep being rocked or mom's arms or, mm -hmm. you know, um, being fed to sleep, when they wake up during the night, they can't recreate that without a parent being involved again. And that's what we sort of want to avoid. We know they're going to wake up during the night. We just don't want them to be so reliant on somebody else um, to help them fall back asleep. So a lot of kind of what let's call it sleep training. I don't like to use that term, but right, like, but but a lot of like behavioral interventions um, in the child, in the infant. A lot of behavioral interventions sounds like later on to make sure we don't have screens or, or close screens in our older kids. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about right the child that that really does have something wrong, right, or we really suspect a, a pathology or a sleep disorder. Um, are are sleep studies still considered kind of the first line way to diagnose that? How how useful are they and are they always indicated? Yeah. So great question. Um, and, you know, I would say our first line is um, our pediatricians out there. I mean, really getting a good history, um, probably less so, but also a good physical, you know, can really sort of help guide of, of where we're going and identifying what is the sleep problem. Sleep studies, well, great. And, you know, I love them and I, and I get so much good information out of them for the right patient do not tell us all the answers. I mean, they're really designed for a few specific things. I mean, for those who don't know what it is, it's a it's a, a essentially a monitoring test. You know, it's an overnight test. It's um, by and large done in a sleep laboratory where they hook up a lot of monitors to look at things like brain waves, oxygen levels, um, breathing parameters, ox uh, carbon dioxide, things like that. Um, and we're really looking for very specific things. We're looking for... Um, 
if there's any trouble breathing that could be disruptive to the sleep or disruptive um, to the health, if there are any unusual movements during the night. And then we do get some information from um, the sleep stages, what kind of sleep stages you get into, when, how they fall. And that's usually more for older kids, but if we're thinking of um, more unusual sleep problems like narcolepsy. But it does not really do a great job of telling us uh, you know, why someone's having fall, trouble, say, falling asleep in the beginning of the night. It's not a great test for insomnia. It's not a great test for what we call parasomnia, sort of unusual behaviors during the night, but things like sleepwalking or night terrors. Uh, it doesn't really do a lot to tell us uh, about that. It doesn't do a great job of telling us, um, you know, those teenagers who want to stay up really late and want to sleep until noon, um, it doesn't really tell us, you know, why their sleep pattern is like that. It can tell us what's going on when they're actually asleep, but not not maybe why they are um, taking so long to fall asleep. So it's the, the number one, by and large, indication we have in pediatrics for sleep studies is to the diagnosis um, and assessment of severity of sleep apnea. Okay, so since, since you mentioned sleep apnea, let's talk a little bit about that because, sure. I, I, you know, right, I know there's different kinds. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was always trained that you don't necessarily need a, a sleep study, right? Sometimes it can be a clinical diagnosis. Is, is that still accurate? And how, how necessary is it, is it to treat? Is it something that always needs medicine or surgery? Sure. So all great questions. Um, you know, I'll start with the first one. Is it always necessary to have a sleep study? And that really sort of depends on who you ask, uh, where you live in terms of availability. So, you know, it used to be, uh, when, when we talk about sort of pediatric obstructive sleep apnea, uh, particularly the younger kids, the kids maybe less than 10 years old, the number one reason is going to be having large tonsils and adenoids. And the number one treatment for that is going to be um, shaving down or removal of those large tonsils and adenoids. So, it used to be that, you know, you had the right history of the snoring and the really large tonsils, and it was probably enough to just say, hey, we're, we'll put two and two together and know what's going on, and, um, you know, we'll take these out. Sure. We're a little less aggressive about sort of just doing that kind of surgery um, based on just that alone. Does it happen? Absolutely. Is it okay most of the time? Most likely, um, but we don't want to do surgery unless we have a really great reason to it. We don't want to give anesthesia unless we have a really great reason to it, to do it. Um, and there are kids who might be sort of more at risk for either having surgery or from complications of sleep study that we do want to do a better job of identifying when we can. So even our surgical colleagues, the ear, nose, and throat docs who are taking out these, um, you know, who are taking out the tonsils and adenoids sort of have a, you know, a protocol in mind of, you know, what child might cause them some problems in the perioperative period and, and who should we sort of look a little bit closer at before. So that's where a sleep study can really be helpful. It can really sort of say, hey, is this a child who, you know, maybe we shouldn't just do in the morning and send home by the afternoon. Maybe we want to watch them in the hospital overnight one night. Or is this a kid who maybe needs a little uh, extra attention leading up to surgery to make sure, um, you know, getting anesthesia and stuff is safe based on how severe things are to, to begin with? Or is this somebody who, you know, maybe a really loud snorer, but those findings are otherwise pretty mild, then maybe we want to wait it out a little bit and see what happens as the child grows. So we get a lot of good information from the sleep study. Um, and is But is it 100% absolutely necessary? Not always. I mean, that's really uh, a surgical question. 
the um, the I'll tell you the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, do advocate for having some objective data before considering something like a tonsillectomy for for snoring or sleep disorder breathing. Okay, so so pretty useful, and sounds like there's some or rather a lot of, of clinical variability, right? Not not all not not all sleep apnea is is created equally. So I want to talk a little bit about a disorder that maybe is a little bit less common, but certainly enough mm-hmm. so that that it's come across my radar as just a general pediatrician. Um, insomnia, right? And when we talked about those teenagers that struggle to fall asleep, and and let's say like we we've done all the things, right? There there's no screens, yes, yes. and right where we're we're doing all the all the good sleep hygiene things that are recommended but like the kids still cannot fall asleep um what what is the evidence regarding any medication um in these kids or do we always need to just continue to optimize our behavioral interventions so that's a a great question a question that i get all the time so when we're talking about uh soporific or sleep inducing medications um there's really nothing that's fda approved in um you know children less than 16 years old um, we have some medications out there that sort of have as a side effect sleepiness that sometimes we capitalize on. But there's really no sort of slam dunk that's going to say this person's going to fall asleep on their own, stay asleep all night, wake up when you want and feel great during the day. Right. It's potentially part of a bigger picture. And as you sort of touched on sleep hygiene, those behaviors around sleep, uh, looking at the sleep schedule, uh, reducing um, screen times is really going to help. Um, but adding some other things to it can also help. You know, so we talk about sort of cognitive behavioral therapies mm-hmm. of insomnia, where you sort of address not only the sleep habits around sleep and your sleep environment, but also maybe some of the things that are barriers to falling asleep. You know, is it that you sort of are worried about school, that you're, you know, your mind's thinking of a million things as you're trying to go to sleep at night, um, you know, uh, stressors and all these things, you know, that maybe we can sort of ignore or distract during the day. Once you close the eyes off and you aren't distracted by a million things can really all of a sudden be very on the, on the forefront of, of these kids' minds. So, um, meditation, uh, stretching exercise, breathing exercise, all those can be a component of helping kids fall asleep. The addition of something like melatonin can be helpful. Um, you know, a lot of people have gone off and tried melatonin sort of on its own, you know, even before coming to see me, probably before coming to see you even. Mm-hmm. Melatonin is one of those tricky things where, um, you know, uh, the dosing and the timing can be pretty variable. Um, more is not necessarily more. In fact, more can sometimes wash out our own body's production of melatonin, um, which we do a really good job of, of making. We've looked, almost everyone makes melatonin. You know, we shut off our own body's production of melatonin when we expose ourselves to light. But for the most part, um, augmenting with a little extra melatonin can be helpful um, as long as it's not too much and as long as you sort of have your timing right and as long as it's part of a big piece of the puzzle. So I don't know if this has been your experience, but I've often gotten... You know, the, the family who comes and says, oh, I, you know, I took melatonin, at one milligram, say, you know, I started off with some low dose and the first like three nights, it was great. And then all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't work so much anymore. Yep. So then I, I gave more. And then again, first three nights, you know, so it's not a perfect medication. And once you get sort of too high, you start realizing this probably isn't working at all anymore. And maybe you have some side effects, you know, which are pretty uncommon, but sometimes you'll hear kids with bad nightmares or something like that from the melatonin. Um, you know, there is at very high doses, which I often don't see people come in, some concerns that it could induce something like seizures. But really, sure. for the by and large, 
it's a pretty safe, well-tolerated supplement. Um, comes with some of the, uh, you know, concerns of being an unregulated unregulated supplement, but there are enough good solid brands out there that, you know, have some, some degree of quality control that I think overall it's a pretty safe supplement, but again, a small piece of a, of a bigger uh, puzzle. So what I'll often do is I'll say to somebody who comes to see me, who's, you know, feels like they've tried it all and they have, uh, you know, they've, they've tried the no screens, they've tried a later bedtime, mm-hmm. they've tried the earlier bedtime, they've tried melatonin, they've tried that. Yeah. And then we'll sort of, sort of, step back and say, okay, you know, let's, let's put the things together that we think are going to be most helpful and let's dedicate some time to doing this. And it's a lot. And the older, the older the child is, the more buy-in they need to have. I mean, you know, they need to really be on board with this too. So it might not be something that you can go home and try that night, but you have to know that, you know, maybe for two weeks of really committing to doing this, you know, and maybe it's not these two weeks, maybe it's on school break, maybe it's on the summer, maybe it is during school, whatever it may be, you know, might feel a little bit worse before it feels better because now some of the things that you're used to helping you, you know, maybe you're eliminating things like keeping the TV on in the background, just, you know, as an example. So um, I'm not opposed to using the melatonin as part of it. Um, And, you know, some kids are, you know, for whatever reason, if they have other medical or behavioral conditions, might have other medications that we might even add on to sort of take advantage of that sleepy effect. Um, but it's not going to be the one thing that does it, and it's not the long-term solution. So it, it sounds that it's this is a pretty challenging disorder to kind of address and treat, and you need you need a lot of components and, and factors. Um, but I I find that. And, and maybe this is just my experience as, as a pediatrician. And by the time they get to you, maybe they're more motivated. But, you know, fa- families really struggle to do all these behavioral uh, interventions, right? And the cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's, it's not a quick fix. So what I have seen is they will come to me and they, they may have, right, a component of, of true insomnia. It's maxed out the, the melatonin um, and it, quote unquote, doesn't work, right? Or no longer works, like you mm-hmm. said. And they want the, the next thing, right? What, what the, the next, quote unquote, quote, stronger thing. And so sometimes I'll say, I know someone on clonidine or like my other kid is on clonidine. And I always feel a little bit uncomfortable. I I, I feel like that's not really something I should be starting um, for for a sleep disorder. Is there any indication for the use of that medicine? So that medicine has been pretty uh, well used, particularly in children with ADHD, you know, um, because it's a medication that we use for that. If you look and you ask, uh, you know, all the sleep, sleep docs out there, everyone's got one or two medicines in their back pocket that they sort of use for some refractory or really significant uh, cases. And almost always it's not going to be the same medicine. There's really just not (laughs) one out there that everyone kind of agrees like that. This is the one that's sort of our next step. And that's frustrating. It's frustrating for families. It's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for me. Um, You know, but I think that that kind of speaks to, you know, where pharmacology falls into this sort of treatment of insomnia you're also talking about, you know, a, a pediatric patient, whatever the age may be, you know, if it's a school age or a teenager, you know, what's our end game here, right? Our end game is to get someone sleeping better on their own. You know, we're not talking about sure. you know, in the later stage of their life where we say, okay, this might be their lifelong medication. You know, that's sort of not the expectation that we should have in, have in place. So what I sort of like to think about and like to sort of talk to families about is sort of like this little sleep toolkit that you have, you know, like if we can sort of help reset and get things a little bit better, and maybe that's a temporary course of medication in addition to all the behavioral things, 
then we can sort of maybe loosen up on some things, you know, I'm, I always like to stay really strict about, you know, the, um, the screens is sort of a big one for me. Some, some consistency to your sleep wake cycle is, is pretty important. Um, but some other things that maybe we're really strict about, we can sort of lighten up a little bit, but then, you know, maybe something happens, maybe, you know, someone's sick in the family, there's a move, there's some other stressor in your life and some of the sleep problems start, you know, creeping back in. And then it's like, hey, you know what? I have this toolkit. I know what to do. I know that I got to be stricter about this. I, I, I have to go back to doing my breathing exercises before sleep. I have to, mm-hmm. you know, go back to not staying awake in bed too long. Um, all those things I think are, you know, really empower the, the patient, the child, the person to say like, I, I have control and I, I know how to prevent this from having going, going forward. But that, you know, it's pretty intensive on, on the, on the front end, you know, so if you have, you know, if I have a patient who comes in and you've probably had this experience, you know, you have the child who's coming in, uh, the older child, usually a teenager, because they're going to school too late because they are oversleeping because they're so tired and they come home and every day they're sleeping three to six and then, of course, they can't fall asleep at 10 or 11. So then they're up till, you know, 1 a.m. And then the alarm goes off at 6 a.m. And good luck getting that, you know, 150-pound teenage boy out of bed. Yep. You know, that's a really difficult thing. So, uh, and I asked him, well, when's your, when, when do you, when's your regular bedtime? Well, I don't know. It varies. It depends. <laughs> you know? Exactly. That might be my first step. And I might say to them, hey, you know what? Some, we're on summer vacation. You pick a bedtime anytime. I don't care if it's four in the morning, but I want you to pick a bedtime that you're willing to be consistent with for a week (laughs) because it's much easier for me to fix something consistent to get it back in the right spot than to fix something that's all over the place. You know, Um, that can be hard. It can be really hard to get kids to buy into that. Um, Parents, you know, much easier (laughs) when it comes to that age because there's a lot of frustration. For sure. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the other extreme mm-hmm. of insomnia, which is a uh, um, sort of, of of narcolepsy. So I haven't come across this at as much. So I will say I I don't know too much about it. Um, so first, tell us a little bit about what it is. Does it does it last forever? Does it ever go away? And um, what are the risks of of not really diagnosing it or treating it properly? Yeah, so that's a great question. Narcolepsy is a fascinating illness. It is a lifelong illness. Generally speaking, it's related to a uh, deficiency or absence of a certain neurotransmitter in the brain um, called um, orexin or hypocretin, depending on, on, on where, or where you look in the literature. But um, it's a disorder of excessive sleepiness, a central meaning from the brain disorder of excessive sleepiness. So... Um, when we talk about sleepiness, it means like a drive to sleep, like your body is craving sleep. Very different from people who are talking about just overall being tired or fatigued. You know, tired, mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the umbrella term tiredness sort of, um, you know, captures both sleepiness and fatigue. So fatigue, I always think about like, you know, if you climb a mountain and your body feels exhausted and you just sort of want to sit under the tree and, and, you know, drink some water and get some more energy to be able to climb back down, that's sort of fatigue. When you talk about sleepiness, it's like your body craving sleep. So um, there's only one thing that really causes sleepiness and that's that your body doesn't have enough sleep. You don't, you're not sleepy, you're not falling asleep from boredom, you know, unless you're otherwise need the sleep. So um, this is a disorder of sleepiness. And the reason why is because it's a real disorder of our REM sleep, which is our dreaming sleep, um, and the uh, neurotransmitters that drive REM sleep. So 
when we talk about uh, sleep, we have two main types. We have our rapid eye movement sleep, which is our REM sleep, is our dreaming stage of sleep, and our non-rapid eye movement stage of sleep, which, which we have several different times. And the key part of narcolepsy is this sort of irregular pattern of REM sleep, both during the night when you're asleep and some intrusion of that REM sleep during the day. So the hallmark of narcolepsy is what we call excessive sleepiness. So I will, you know, if I were to ask you a bunch of different questions about how, uh, you know, how likely you'd be to fall asleep in these situations, uh, these kids will say, I'll definitely fall asleep. I'll fall asleep. Not only, you know, maybe in a long car ride or if I take a nap, but I'll fall asleep talking to someone. I'll fall, mm-hmm. fall asleep in class. I'll fall asleep in a public place. Um, and then that's definitely really worth pushing sort of the next step. Like, why are you so sleepy? Are you so sleepy because you're sleeping four hours of sleep a night? Or are you so sleepy because you've got, you know, terrible sleep apnea and you're snoring and you have large tonsils and obesity and, you know, lots of risk factors for that? Or are you sleepy because there's something else going on? Um, and to me, you know, really, if, if you're getting from at any age group, somebody who is really sleeping during the daytime out of the realm of sort of the normal nap periods, which again, is usually age five and below, that should be a red flag. Like we need to look for something more, <laughs> you know, it might not be narcolepsy. It might, like I said, it might just be having not enough hours of sleep, but we really need to look more because kids should not be sleepy during the day if they're getting the right amount of sleep. There are a few other things about narcolepsy that sort of stand out in the history, and they're not universal, but they're always sort of things that we we, we look at. Um, and uh, there are a couple things that have to do with that intrusion of REM sleep during the day. So when we are in a REM sleep, our muscles are actually paralyzed, prevents us from acting out our dreams. The only muscles that are not paralyzed in REM sleep are our eye muscles, which is why they call it rapid eye movement sleep, and our diaphragm, the main muscle we have to breathe. So people who have this sort of irregular pattern of REM sleep sometimes have that um, REM paralysis during the day when they're awake. And this is often triggered by emotion, you know, particularly happy emotions, laughter, telling a joke, hearing a joke, um, excitement. And all of a sudden in that setting, while you're awake, you'll have some uh, paralysis of some of your muscles. And that's what we call cataplexy. And a lot of people have seen some version of this and, you know, some Hollywood version, uh, you know, in, in a movie, usually with some sort of comedic slant to it. Um, but it's a really unfortunate problem that can happen. And it's often not as dramatic as um, it, it looks like on the big screen. You know, it can just be some more subtle uh, weakness, you know, face drooping, slurred words, funny looking eyes, uh, kids feeling like they're, you know, they have to hold on to steady themselves because their legs are going to buckle. So cataplexy, if you get that really unusual history, you know, 100% needs to be evaluated for narcolepsy. The other sort of features of abnormal REM that we sometimes see in narcolepsy, but we can also see in other disorders uh, or in, or can be normal variants or what we call sleep paralysis. So you wake up from sleep and you go to move over and you can't, your whole muscle is paralyzed. That's because you're still sort of stuck in that REM, that REM state or waking up or falling asleep to having very, very vivid dreams to the point that you have sort of hallucinations. You, 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 you wake up, you know, you're awake, but you see things that aren't there. You hear things that aren't there. And that can also be sort of a feature of, of, of narcolepsy. So these are all things we sort of probe and ask about, um, but they don't sort of make or break the diagnosis of narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is really a diagnosis that we make uh, based on a special kind of sleep study. 
to the question about how important is it to to um, recognize and treat, well, it's really important to recognize, very important. And the reason is we know that most people get diagnosed with narcolepsy when they're a little bit older. They're usually adults. Um, so we see a lot in like sort of the second, third decade of life where they get diagnosed. But when we ask, they, they will have recall to having symptoms back to, you know, 10 years prior. So, mm-hmm. we're, so this is something that is manifesting in the pediatric population, but because of its rarity and because of findings maybe more subtle early on, um, it's being misdiagnosed or, or underdiagnosed or just underrecognized. And these kids from that standpoint can be at a real um, disadvantage because sometimes what ends up happening is they get labeled as lazy or depressed or just someone who's not paying attention or maybe not intelligent because they're having all these issues related to falling asleep in class or um, or are sort of going through the motions with being partially asleep in class. And we're missing these key years of sort of their academic uh, and social life there that we could be helping in. Once you have the diagnosis and you talk about treating it, um, there are two main types of treatment. And some people opt to never be treated pharmacologically. Most people do. But one of the things is sort of just recognizing the diagnosis. One of the treatments we use for it is sleep. So these kids mm-hmm. benefit from some uh, naps during the day, like scheduled naps. You know, we can make it during the school day where they go lie down in the nurse's office. Even a short burst of 10, 15 minutes can oftentimes sort of energize them again for the next few hours until the sleep overwhelms them again. And then they might need another nap. Um, uh, you know, we really have to hone in on sort of sleep hygiene and make sure they don't have other sleep disorders that can also often occur with them. Um, and then there's a lot of medications that either help people stay awake or help improve their REM sleep at night that sort of can uh, can really address some of the daytime manifestations. But unlike a medicine, uh, unlike a, um, an illness like diabetes, where maybe you need to treat yourself every single day, um, you don't necessarily need to take narcolepsy medicines every day if you don't want to. So I have plenty of patients who say, you know, on, on the weekends or during the summer break when I can take naps when I want to, I'd rather not take the medicines those days. And, and, and that's okay. Um, they still need to be mindful of their tiredness. They still need to uh, certainly, uh, you know, have extra caution to things like, you know, being behind the wheel of a car or, um, you know, operating heavy machinery or swimming without someone supervising them, anything that can be dangerous with them falling asleep, but they don't necessarily need to to treat their sleepiness um, pharmacologically if they don't want. It's fascinating. Really, it sounds like, again, just very, very challenging to live with and to treat. So do do any of these disorders ever go together or rather, are there other comorbidities, right? Or other disorders, either psychiatric, behavioral or otherwise that you find in children who have sleep disorders? Yes. So great question. And, uh, you know, sleep finds its way of working into everything. And uh, I will say if you have poor sleep, really most underlying conditions you have are going to sort of be a bit augmented. So if you have an underlying mood condition, say depression or anxiety, and you're really sleep deprived, it's likely going to make manifestation of those symptoms worse. Um, if you have, uh, you know, underlying medical problems, you know, like, and you're not getting enough sleep, you know, maybe your ability to sort of fight off infection or maintain a healthy blood pressure, all those things, you know, could certainly be harder to treat when you're not, when you're not sleeping. When we think about, particularly when we think about something like obstructive sleep apnea, um, and, you know, it's got a very close relationship to obesity once you hit sure. sort of the, the teenage, uh, older kid, teenage, and, and especially the adult years, there is um, 
a lot of uh, risk factors that go along with that combination. Increasers for things like diabetes, hypertension, um, heart problems, things like that. Fortunately, those are very, very rare in the younger children, um, and their sleep apnea sort of pathophysiology is a bit is a bit different. We see a lot of kids with um, behavioral problems um, mm-hmm. who have sleep problems. So uh, kids with ADHD, and this is a very common patient that I'll see is you know someone gets you know diagnosed with ADHD. And they, uh, you know, their the recommendation is to maybe start some medication for that. And then the family does some reading and sees that some of these symptoms might actually be related to poor sleep. And we want to sort of look that over first before we commit to this being all ADHD. And there is a lot of overlap. There. There's a lot of overlap in, um, in the symptoms of ADHD and the symptoms of having poor sleep. So where we think of adults or older kids who are more often tired when they're not sleeping well kids can really push through the tiredness. If anything, they're overtired. So you have a young child who's not sleeping well, and maybe it's because of really, you know, large tonsils and, and straightforward OSA, but they're not going to necessarily manifest as sort of yawning and falling asleep during the day. They might manifest by having trouble sitting still, having trouble focusing, um, being very irritable during the day, you know, all sort of things that we might see on those um, symptom checklists for kids with ADHD. So there's a lot of overlap there, and it's always sort of worth thinking about, you know, if you have, specifically if you have a new diagnosis of a behavior problem to to sort of address the sleep and say, well, what's going on? Are are you snoring at night? Is Is there any, you know, anything going on that might be disrupting your sleep there? Children on the autism spectrum, another, um, very at risk population for, for sleep problems. Um, so we see a lot of overlap there where um, uh, those children often need some extra help with um, sort of uh, sleep, sleep planning and, and sleep treatments to help them fall off to sleep. And it's interesting because sometimes some of the uh, treatments that we use for these conditions, I feel can make the sleep worse, right? So specifically ADHD, I find that I, sometimes I fix one problem, but I create another where I start a child on stimulants and they're doing, they're doing great and they're really thriving, but then I've, I've maybe done something to interfere with their sleep. We know that's a, that's a known side effect of stimulants, right? So I think that that also sometimes needs to be balanced. Absolutely. And, you know, interestingly, there are some kids whose sleep gets much better on stimulants, particularly if they have a later afternoon um, dose of the stimulant. And that always sort of sounds so counterintuitive and shocking. But sometimes what happens is if you're on a dose of stimulants that sort of, um, uh, you know, keeps you good throughout the day, and then now after it's worn off, you sort of have some uh, some of that hyperactivity and stuff coming back. Sometimes that interferes with going off to sleep, and it's not necessarily the AM dose of stimulants. So that's something that, you know, people who are, and it varies, you know, geographically who manages the ADHD, but that's always something that we sort of consider, you know, maybe it's not just the stimulant per se, maybe it's the timing or the dose or, or the duration of, uh, of action, because sometimes managing that during the night, um, d- later in the day can help going off to sleep at night. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much. We covered we covered so much. Such a fascinating field and, and really, I think, relevant to, to everybody's lives. Like you said, we spend so much time sleeping. Um, I think we probably don't don't pay enough attention to it and certainly learn some things that can help optimize that very important time of the day. So so thank you again. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.